And I've been telling you that Jesus is the greater Job. And that the book of Job, if you've never heard this before, is one way to see a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. And that Job's innocent suffering, now he wasn't perfectly innocent, but he was blameless. And that's what God said about Job. In Job's chapter, Job chapters 1 and 2, it is God that is bragging on Job. It is God that is lauding Job. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless. He turns away from evil. He does good. There's nobody like him. And then remember, Satan begins to challenge that premise. And he says, well, the reason that he follows you is because you put a hedge about him and you've blessed him. And if you take away the hedge and you take away the blessings, here's what he will do. He will what? Remember? He will curse you to your face, right? So all the calamity comes Job's way. And when, when it all happens, including Job's loss of 10 children, all of them die as the roof caves in. Job does not curse God. He does not blame God. He turns to God and he worships. In those famous words, he says, Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now in Job chapter 2, Satan comes again, but this time he says, Okay, it's true. He didn't curse you to your face, but skin for skin, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his life. You let me at him. Yes, I took away his estate and his children, but now you let me at him. Let me at his body. Let me afflict him, his flesh and skin, and let me disease him, and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can have your way with him, but you can't touch his life. And then Satan has it at Job. And remember the terrible calamity of boils, oozing sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Uh, we cataloged in previous studies all the terrible uh, suffering that Job was going through. In fact, when his friends finally come, they've made the journey to comfort him. They see him sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping his wounds with a piece of broken pottery, scraping the pus from his oozing sores. And that's where we started in the book of Job. God lauding Job, commending Job, bragging on Job, and then all of a sudden this terrible temptation or crisis. And Job has not lost his faith. He's still a believer. He's got all kinds of questions, but he's still a believer, and he's still leaning into God, and that's what we have to do in our trials. And I will show you the parallel to the greater Job, who is Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him, upon Jesus. And a voice, Mark 11, I'm sorry, Mark 1:11, a voice came out of the heavens saying, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. What's your Bible say? And immediately, who? The spirit, the Holy Spirit, impelled him. You could say compelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being what? Being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I want you to notice that right after the Father lauds Jesus from heaven, this is my beloved Son, I am pleased with him. Immediately, what's the Spirit do? Compels him to go out into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. I, I mentioned to you guys when we studied Mark, 
that you have to see that when the Messiah is doing what he's doing in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, he is following in the footsteps of Israel who fell in the desert to the temptation of Satan, to the lack of bread, the lack of water, the lack of faith, and they fell hard, and that whole generation, 20 years and above, never went into the Promised Land. They all died, uh, save uh, Joshua and Caleb, right? Those under 20 actually went into the Promised Land. And so the Messiah... Uh, where Israel failed, he succeeds, okay? Now keep thinking about the parallel between Job and Jesus. Jesus is lauded by the Father. This is my beloved son, I'm pleased with him. And immediately what's he sent into? A test or a temptation. Very same as Job. Job is lauded by God. There's nobody like him. And then immediately God allows him to go, what? Into a test or a trial. Turn to the book of Matthew which is, uh, you got Matthew, Mark, so just before Mark, chapter 3. Just another uh, treatment of this with a couple of additions I just want to show you. So you got Matthew three sixteen. After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, Matthew three sixteen from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. Behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, for one of Matthew, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, wow, he then became hungry. Talk about an understatement, right? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. In other words, something like this. If you're the son of God, why would you be going hungry this whole time? Why have you been compelled by the Spirit to be out here in the wilderness right after the heavens open and the Father said, you're his beloved son. What's going on now? Are you his beloved son? Are you the son of God? Are you a child of God? You know, in your temptations, in your trials, this is what the devil will bring to you. This is what your flesh will bring to you. Am I a son of God? Does God really love me? Why am I going through this if he does? Why does he not lift this when I pray? Well, Jesus was hungry. He had the power to command the stones to become bread. We know what he did later in his ministry, feeding 5,000 plus women and children, multiplying bread. But he answered and says, it is written, what's your Bible say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I hope you can see the parallel that Job and Jesus, both commended by God, but then both led into the wilderness of testing or temptation. Go to the book of Job, which is right before the Psalms, chapter 22. We've been watching Job go through all this terrible testing, though he is a blameless man. And the underlying thought that we've all had is why? Why? Now, we could answer the question by knowing there's a debate in the heavens, and God has allowed the test to take place for some deeper reasons than maybe any of us truly know. But one of them has to be for us to read the book of Job today and understand that there's more to life than what we see. And that easygoing and everything, uh, you know, being roses and easy is not necessarily the ways of God. God matures us in his different ways. And the men that were supposed to bring comfort to Job and not immediately assume that he was evil because of the rough times he was going through, well, they did very poorly. 
One of them was Eliphaz the Temanite. This is Job 22.1. He responds to something that Job said about how the evil seemed to prosper from what Job has seen. And here's what he says. This is 22.2 of Job. He says, can a vigorous man, the word in Hebrew geber is, can a strong man or maybe like a warrior be of use to God? Or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? Simply put, what Eliphaz is saying to Job is that you've been claiming that you're a righteous man, but you're suffering. But what I understand, Eliphaz would say, the system that I know is that the reason you're suffering is because you're a wicked man. And you need to repent of this wickedness. That's your problem, Job. You keep claiming to be righteous, but you're not. And if your behavior was righteous or if you were wicked, it wouldn't affect God in any way. God is ambivalent. Maybe, you know, you guys have heard in the past that there are people who are called deists. And a deist is a person who believes that God wound the clock of humanity up. He created the world and the people therein. But then once he wound it all up, he just walked away. He's not involved with his creation. He is a distant deity. He's not impacted by good or evil. It's just going to be however it works out, it works out. Maybe you could say Eliphaz was in this category. And he's saying basically this, Job, I don't think that your, your uh, so-called righteousness or even if, if you're wicked or righteous could do anything to affect God in any way. Is God, can God be affected by the behavior of you and me? What do you think? The answer may surprise you because the answer is that God is impacted by our behavior. In what way, you may ask? Well, Ezekiel 6, 9, God says to Israel, you have broken my heart. By your idolatry and your adultery, by cheating on me spiritually with other gods, you have broken my heart, Ezekiel 6, 9. You all know that the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 30 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit by doing what? By speaking unkind words to people. Uh, in context, perhaps even letting the sun go down on our anger, the, the uh, non-edifying words, the corrupt words that come out of our mouth can grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. In Psalm 78, 40 and 41, as the psalmist goes through the wilderness wanderings of Israel, he says how often they pained the Holy One of Israel, how often they grieved Him in the desert. Now, I cannot tell you that I understand how God has these emotions and feelings, how God could be described in ways that I would understand as brokenhearted. If, if someone was brokenhearted, I could see it on their face. I could see it in their demeanor. I could see it maybe in, you know, or hear it in their words. But in very, what we call human language, the God of the Bible is brokenhearted you remember when Jesus looked over Jerusalem in Luke 19.41 and he cried over the city and he lamented the condition of the rejection of his own people in Luke 19. And then in John 11.35, famously at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. 
God is not ambivalent to our trials and troubles. He cares about how you act. He cares that you mature. And brothers and sisters, that's part of the reason why he tests you. Because he doesn't want you to be stuck. He doesn't want you to stay where you are. He's conforming you more and more into the image of Jesus. And he stretches us in the tests. And when Shane prayed earlier, I would wholeheartedly agree. I rarely enjoy the tests. Can I get a witness? Anybody else out there? When I'm on the rack and I'm being stretched, I'm not like, and I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? That's a song from Sunday school, if you guys didn't know that one. But anyway. But James says I should count it all joy, not the actual trial, I don't think, but the outcome of the trial. Part of Job's trial is not only is he an innocent sufferer or a blameless man, but everybody keeps trying to wrongly blame him for being wicked. He says, Eliphaz, who started off kind of nice in chapter 4, says to Job, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? Dude, you're a rotten sinner. Your your wickedness is great and you just sin it up and you sin it up and sin some more. Verse 6 You've taken pledges, you've demanded security of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. The language here is you took the last coat. Somebody needed a loan from you and you were a famous man of the East. You had money and possessions and servants and property. And when you gave a loan, you took the man's last coat or cloak, which, by the way, in Jewish law, Exodus 22, 26 and 27 was forbidden in Israel. If you took someone's coat that kept them warm, That was a no-no. That was against the law. Notice he says, To the weary, you've given no water to drink. Picture Job with his oozing boils, his devastated life. Man, if you have friends like this, who needs any enemies, right? He says, "You've, You've given no water to drink, and from the hungry, you've withheld bread. Matthew 25, when Jesus describes his people, he says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was in prison, and you visited me. I was sick, and you came to me. And the righteous will say, well, when, when did we do this for you, Lord? When did we see you hungry, and etc., etc.? And he will say, when you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Where is Eliphaz coming up with this stuff? That Job withholds bread and water from the most hurting people. Notice, it gets worse. You've sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. The psalmist says that God is a defender of widows and orphans. He's the father of the fatherless. When I first became a Christian, that was such a meaningful verse to me, because I was a a young man who was fatherless. My own father walked away when I was four, and I never met him. And that verse meant a lot to me because I knew I had a heavenly father who cared about me. If you want the verses, it's Psalm 68, 5 and 6. It says, A father of the fatherless and a judge or defender for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, James 1.27, and to keep oneself unstained 
by the world. This is God's heart. Do you see what Eliphaz is saying to Job? Man, you don't have God's heart. You sit there and say you're blameless, but look at what you do. Now, these were false accusations because I don't see any record that Job did this. How could God call him a blameless and upright man if this was what Job was all about? But remember, Job is a foreshadowing of the greater Job, Jesus, who was what? Falsely accused of doing wrong when he didn't. Jesus was, of course, the only truly innocent person. Job was blameless, not perfectly uh, innocent or sinless. Jesus was sinless. Job was not. But Job is a shadow, as best as he can be, of the Messiah. And the only thing that they could say of the Messiah to get him crucified was to throw false accusations his way. Let me just say to you, One of the ways that we experience some of the trials that Job experienced is through false accusation. Have you ever been falsely accused? It's a a painful thing. It's a hard thing because you don't know if you should defend your honor and run over there and try to fix it or send that email back to that person. Oh, let me tell you something. That's not true. And uh, you're a liar. And, And sometimes, you know, God just says, you let me take care of it. I will defend your integrity. But Look, there are people who like to talk and people who like to make accusations when they don't know what they're talking about. And I think this is what's going on with Job. Talk about pain. He says, therefore, Eliphaz speaking to Job, snares surround you. Here's why you have problems, Job. And sudden dread terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. You want to know why the waves of trials keep coming your way? Here's why. Because this is what you've done. You've committed evil. You're wrong. But that's not true. He says, is not God in the height of heaven? Uh, Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through thick darkness? Eliphaz is painting a picture like Job is trying to say God doesn't see anything, everything. That's not what Job was saying. Job was saying, I don't see everything. Job was saying, my view is clouded. I don't know what God's doing. I have questions for God. I don't think Job was saying God doesn't know what he's doing, but that's what Eliphaz implies. He says clouds are a hiding place for him, 14, so that he cannot see and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod who were snatched away before their time? It's an interesting phrase because it's used also in Ecclesiastes that some people die before their time. Is it possible to die before your time? Well, we have other scriptures that say all the days of our book, uh, of our life were written in his book before what? One of them came to pass. Which is it? Well, if you are foolish and you do dumb things and you test the Lord, you may, and I'll put this in quotes, die before your time. If you take a gun and you shoot yourself, and sadly people have done this, you may have died before your time. That's not what God had for you. Now God can still turn that around in families' lives. I know there's been a lot of people hurt and wounded by suicide, and I'm not making a commentary on that, but I'm just saying this. Imagine someone who grows up in a home, and they become an addict, and they're on the street, and they're... Uh, addicted to a drug, and they inject a drug in their arm and they end up dying of an overdose. Did they die before their time? 
I would submit to you, yes. Did God know what was going to happen? Yes. God can't learn anything, but still. And, and here's, I think, what Eliphaz is saying to Job. He's saying, well, that's why you're sick, Job, because you're evil. Uh, you're going to follow in the path of all the other evil people. You're going to walk in their ancient path who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river. They said to God, here's the problem, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? They lived their life basically shaking their fist at God, yet he filled their houses with good things, like you, Job. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see and are glad, and the innocent mock them, saying, truly our adversaries are cut off, and their abundance the fire has consumed." Eliphaz piles it on, assuring Job that God will judge the wicked. God dwells on on high. He sees everything. Job's actions have been well within his view. And Eliphaz basically says, you're just walking the same path as all the wicked people. This is what happens to wicked people. I've been telling you, wicked people do bad things and they get judged for it. And you're just the same as everybody else, Job. Don't think you're the exception. You won't submit to God's lordship. You're going to be swept away like the chaff in Psalm chapter 1. Now, I would say this. If if Eliphaz was talking to a wicked person and telling them to repent of their sin lest evil come upon their house, that might be a legitimate way to use this text, right? But that's not who he's talking to. He's not talking to a person who's so far from the Lord that they need to repent. He's talking to Job, a godly and righteous man. That's why many of the sermons that you hear in the book of Job could be legitimately preached, but they are misapplied oftentimes. And that's what we have to see. He says, final appeal from Eliphaz's final speech in the book. Some softer tones here. He says, yield now and be at peace with him, with God and thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth. Eliphaz believes he's speaking for God. And establish his words in your heart. If you return, that's the same word for repent, to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust, maybe he's implying that uh, Job's God is money, like the rich young ruler. The gold of Ophir, which is kind of famous in the ancient East, among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. If you would just yield and repent, Job, everything would fall into place. But Job has nothing to repent of. So what, would he, what does he do with these words? This could apply to someone that we'd be warning to repent, but this is not Job. For then you will delight in the Almighty, lift up your face to God. This is an idiom of like, you could look God in the eye with confidence. You will pray to him, he will hear you, you will pay your vows, kind of like Jonah 2 verse 9, your vows will be prayers of thanksgiving once you're restored. You will also decree a thing and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways or your prosperity will be reestablished. When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence. The humble person he will save and he will deliver one who is not innocent and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Something this, uh, I think this is what this means. He's saying, look, once you get it all together, 
Job, and people hear your story, other people will be encouraged to repent. And you'll be a great spokesman for God. Now that's the last speech of Eliphaz. Now if you're Job, sitting on your pile of ashes, scraping your <laughs> hey, thanks bud, appreciate it. That's another just wonderfully encouraging speech from my comforting friends. You guys are so awesome. Poor comforters, right? Now, here's Job in his pain, and Job replies. Even today, 23.1, my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Now, Job is saying, look, I think I've been complaining a lot, and maybe my complaint even now is rebellion, but I have to say, his hand is heavy on me. And if you have an ESV, it says, my hand. It's difficult to translate, but either way, if it's my hand, it means I have no strength. If it's God's hand, it's like Psalm 32, when David had sinned with Bathsheba, he tried to hide it, and for a year, God's heavy hand was upon him. Now, what you want in your life is God's encouraging hand. Amen? What you want in your life is God's hands pushing you along. But sometimes God's heavy hand is upon you. And that's because he is disciplining you because he loves you. That's what happened to David in Psalm 32. Is God's heavy hand. He wouldn't let David get away with it because he loved him too much. How many of you were here for Charlie Campbell on Sunday? Raise up your hand. Charlie Campbell made a great comment. He was talking about sexual sin in the culture. And he said, look, I know there's all this controversial stuff about homosexuality and sexual sin and stuff. And, and he said, look, he said, I don't always like my kids' behavior. I don't always like how my kids are behaving, but I still love them. The same is true for people out there in the world demanding uh, that they want to do what they want to do sexually, and they're painting the church as though we hate them, that's not true, brothers and sisters. It's not true. We love everybody. I want to see everybody come to Jesus, no matter what your besetting sin may be, no matter what you struggle with. That's not the issue. But the issue is that if you want to justify your behavior and change the Bible to accommodate your lifestyle, that's where we cannot agree. I can say, like my children, I love them. I didn't always, and they're now older, I didn't always appreciate their behavior. And Charlie said, sometimes I even say to my kids, what you're doing is sinful. But does it mean I don't love my kids? Of course not. It just means I don't agree with how they're behaving. But this is where we've come to in the culture. It's gotten so ridiculous. And the heavy hand of God sometimes comes down on us, right in your notes, Psalm 32, one through four, because he loves us so much to discipline us. Has anybody, uh, when you were growing up, you ever had a heavy-handed parent who grabbed you pretty good, like right in this area, and went, oh no, you ain't gonna do that, young man or young lady. Get right back there, march back in that room, and take care of business. How many of you remember Spock in the Star Trek series? You can grab people right here. People would just go out, right? Uh, God has that kind of ability, amen? <laughs> just kind of a... <laughs> he, 
And when you get the, just know it's because he loves you. But that's not what's happening to Job. Job is not being disciplined by God. God is Job's biggest fan. So when you're going through a trial, don't always think that it's because you did something wrong. Don't try to come up with something. Are you this person? I don't know what I did to deserve this, but I must have done something to deserve this. Right? Hey, we're in a fallen world. It's a broken world, and sometimes things happen, and it's not always that God's disciplining you, and you've got to try to find something. Yeah, oh, was this on Tuesday morning? I know what it was. The last little half and half, I poured it in my coffee. I didn't save anybody for the other person. That's what's happening right now. <laughs> no, I don't think so. See, if we do that, then we're misunderstanding God's love for us. God's not trying to nitpick your life, brothers and sisters. He's not trying to look for the little things that you do wrong. Aha! <laughs> now, maybe some other people do that. Ha ha! See? That's not God. God loves you. And so Job is feeling listless without strength, and he says, oh, verse 3, oh, that I knew, that I knew where I might find him, find God that I might come to his seat. If you do a concordance search on the phrase, oh, that, it's used more times in Job than any other book in the Bible. Job says in Job 6.2, oh, that my vexation were actually weighed. In chapter 6, he wishes that God would kill him before he denies God. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says, oh, that thou would hide me in Sheol until your judgment passes over me. Hide me, God. In Job 19.23, he says, Oh, that my words were written in a book. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. If, if I die in this state, I wish that my defense at least was recorded. Ironically, it is in a book. And in Job 23.3, Job longs to find God, and he aches to meet with God. Oh, that I could find him. Oh, that I could meet with God and appear Come to his seat. What seat is that? It's the judgment seat, right? It's the throne. Let's get ahead to uh, Job 31 for a second. Job 31. Some of you need to mark this verse because if you have little kids or people don't have great listening skills around you, this would be a verse for you to mark. Job 31, 35 says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Everybody mark that in your Bible. Nobody listens to me. Is that you? Nobody hears me. My friends don't hear what I'm saying. God doesn't hear what I'm saying. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. Behold, here's my signature, 3135. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversaries have, have written back to Job 23. Job just says, man, I want to appear before God's seat. I want to plead my case. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you can do that as many times a day as you want? Do you know why? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he ever lives, Hebrews 7.25, to intercede for you. Did you know that? You're invited to a throne of grace that you might receive mercy and help in time of need. Job doesn't have the full conception of Jesus yet. 
He has the idea of a mediator and a redeemer. We've seen that. But he doesn't know Jesus by name. He doesn't understand the full gospel, but we do. We can go to the throne of grace. We have a mediator there, Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34, who lives to intercede for us. He is on your side. He is for you. He is not against you. In fact, he's painted in the original language as a defense attorney so that when the adversary comes to accuse you, Jesus is actually standing on your side. That's pretty good news to have Jesus on your side, isn't it? But Job doesn't have that full picture. He says in 23.4, I would present my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer me and perceive that he would, what, what he would say to me, six. He would contend with me by the greatness of his power. Would he do that? He is not sure. No, surely he would pay attention to me. I think he would listen. There the upright would reason with him, seven. And I would be delivered or acquitted forever from or by my judge. If I could just get there, if I could just talk to God. If you took a microphone on the street of Corona right now and you said to somebody, hey, maybe you interviewed 10 people. Hey, if you got to appear before God, what would you say? Wouldn't it be interesting to hear the answers? Do you know a lot of people responded to a Barna survey and they said that one of the things that they would ask God, and this was the top answer, is why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Well, that's what Job wanted to ask, but it was kind of personal. Like, why? Why am I going through this? But he says, look, he says, I believe if I got before him, he, he would listen to me, six. I, I believe he would acquit me forever. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what we have. It says in Colossians 1.22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, Colossians 1.22. Right now, you are blameless in God's sight. How? Because you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Not only are you forgiven of every sin you've ever committed, but the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account by faith, and you are now free from accusation. That's really good news. That's what the greater Job does for us. He says, behold, I would go forward, but he is not there. Here's the problem. I want to appear before God, but I can't see where he is. I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I cannot perceive him. Nine, when he acts on the left, I can't behold him. He turns on the right, I can't see him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, when he has tested me, what your Bible say, brothers and sisters, I shall come forth as gold. I can't see him. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And those who worship him, it's up on the wall, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Colossians 1.15 says, God is invisible. Visible to my eye. He's spirit. But Jesus is the physical manifestation of the invisible God. That's what Colossians 1.15 says. Jesus is God in a bod, if you like rhymes. So 
one of the objections that people bring up is, well, if God really wanted to make himself known to us, why didn't he show up? Oh, he did. In the very history in which we are embedded, in this very history 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up, did miracles, raised the dead, opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped the ears of the deaf, raised people out of the tomb after being dead for four days, and raised his own body from the dead. Uh, is that enough evidence for you that God walked among us? I'd say so. He even calmed the sea, cast out demons out of people, and he is alive. And sometimes in our trials, we say, Lord, your spirit, uh, like the little boy on a storm-tossed night, the lightning strikes, the thunder's happening, and he cries out for mommy to come in the room, and mommy comes in, it's okay, just cry out to Jesus, and the little boy goes, I know, I know, but I, right now I need someone with skin. I need, I need somebody here, right? And this is where brother, brethren, we can become God's hands and feet to other people. This is where the body of Jesus Christ, think of Jesus as the head, and so we're the hands and the feet. So the head tells us, I want you reaching out to that person. I want you to speak my truth. I want your feet to walk over here and do something good so that person knows I'm alive. I'm going to heaven, but I'm giving you my spirit, and I want you to walk out who I am in the world. See, people can't see God, but they can see you. People don't always know all the evidences that you may know about the creation and the conscience and the, the scriptures, the canon of scripture and the archaeology and all of that, but they see you every day at work. And Christ lives in you, not in the archaeological pieces that we dig up, Christ lives in you. And so Job says, I, I look around in my trial. Where, where will I go? I can't perceive him. But would you take heart in verse 10? Even though I don't see him, he knows the way I take. I don't know the way he takes. I don't know what God's schedule looks like every day. <laughs> right? I know he's always doing good and he's always working and he doesn't sleep, but I don't know what his schedule looks like. But he knows the way I take. And here's the cool thing. And when he has tried or tested me, verse 10, Job says, is Job a believer, folks? Oh, yeah. He says, I'm going to come forth as gold. Now, in the scriptures, the idea of the refiner's fire is put forth to us. And I want to show you a passage in 1 Peter. Hold your place in Job. We're almost done, but check this out. This is in 1 Peter. It's the back of the New Testament. And Peter's speaking to a group of persecuted Christians who are trying to hold on to their faith. And you may be in this category tonight. And he's talking about trials. And he says in 1 Peter 1.6, in this, 1 Peter 1.6, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, 1 Peter 1, 7, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the, as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. When the refiner puts the silver or the gold in the fire, what does he do? He scrapes away the dross. He gets rid of the, the ugly stuff, the impurities. As gold is heated, impurities float to the top and can be skimmed off. Steel is tempered or strengthened by heating in the fire. And Job, before Peter ever wrote this, if you go back to the book of Job, says, I'm going to come out of the fire as pure gold. Is Job more hopeful than he was in the earlier chapters? Yep. And I think this is what happens to us in our trials. When it first happens, we're like, oh, the calamity, it's terrible. What's going to happen? And then as time goes on, we're like, eh, it's a little better, but it's still pretty bad and horrible. And then as time goes on, we're like, would you hide me? Be my refuge and strength. Just let this pass over. This too shall pass. And then it goes on a little bit more. We say, we want to live. I know my Redeemer lives. See, sometimes as we progress through a trial, we realize what big babies we are. Anybody out there want to say amen to that? And we're over here to I got a hangnail. And people are starving. And this nail's killing me. Look, I know it's a problem. But. And then we walk through the trial. And have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever come three quarters of the way through a trial and went, oh, hmm, <laughs> I connected about three of these dots so far. I have a feeling that's what you've been up to, Lord. Man, that was a long journey to get here, <laughs> right? And that's because God tests his people to stretch you. The fire is hot. Oh, there's no doubt. Scraping hurts. Impurities float to the top. And you're like, <laughs> man, that was on me. <laughs> yep. He says, verse 11, Job 23, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way. Have you ever been away through a trial and gone, you know what? Even though I've kind of been whiny and I've had a bunch of questions, I've still held the path. I've still uh, uh, been steadfast and immovable, not turned aside. I think God does that for us. And then this is one of my favorite Bible verses. Job says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. Job 23, 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. If you have a ESV, it says my portion. The NIV says more than my daily bread. Do you remember how we started, brethren? We said the greater Job Jesus was out in the wilderness tempted by Satan, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan said, turn the rocks into bread if you're the son of God. If he really loves you, if he's so pleased with you, do it. And Jesus said, my daily bread is to do the will of my Father. You see, I can't live just on the bread that everybody else is striving for. Jesus says to a crowd following him in John chapter 6, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of God 
or the Son of Man will give you on that day. Stop living for the wrong things. Sometimes God has to show us how divided our heart has been through a test to make us more single-hearted so that we can actually live in the verse that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So many ways that Job could have gone. So many ways that we can go in the trial. We could go this way, that way. We could say, God, forget about you. You're not coming through for me, so I'm done. But Job says, no, I'm leaning into God. And then he's going to end with some more doubt, which we shouldn't be surprised by. He says, but (laughs) he is unique, and who can turn to him? Who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does. If anyone is ever categorized as unique, it's God. Amen? To whom will you liken me? Sometimes we say, oh, that's a unique car. Or that's a unique sunset or a unique looking animal. Maybe so. But you know the category of unique is God. To whom will you liken me, says God. Look up at the stars. I made those. Look around. I made everything. Who are you going to liken me to? People say, well, the Trinity, it's kind of like an egg. There's the shell and the yolk. No, 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 no. God's not kind of like an egg. Uh, well, the Trinity is kind of like the triple point of water. This is good. At a temperature in a test tube, water will freeze at the bottom, liquefy in the middle, and puff smoke at the top. So if H2O can be three in one, well, maybe that's, well, that's still an analogy that breaks down. It doesn't describe God. And that's what Job is saying. He's so incomparable. He's one of a kind. He dwells in unapproachable light. For he performs what is appointed for me. Many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. He's imagining getting this opportunity to be at his throne. When I consider, I'm terrified of him. Almost reminds me of the cowardly lion. (laughs) Well, maybe the wizard would give you courage if you went to the Emerald City. Yeah, but I'd be too afraid to ask him for it. I think that's what Job is doing. I imagine you ever uh, hear somebody say, yeah, when, when I end up before God, I'll tell him a thing or two about a thing or two. Uh, no, you won't. He dwells in unapproachable light. Our God is a consuming fire. I don't think you're going to say anything. And that's what Job is saying. He says, I would be dismayed at his presence, 15, when I consider I'm terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint, the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I'm not silenced by the darkness, nor deep gloom which covers me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep leaning in with my fears and my doubts. Why don't you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. He who follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness. They'll have the light of life. Thank you that Job is such an example of a man who went through such a severe trial, held on to his faith, was stretched and changed, and he began to really see 
dig down at the gospel. He didn't see it all. But right now we do, Lord. We see a cross where the light of the world took the darkness of our sin, took the wrath of Almighty God, the perfect innocent sufferer who died for a man like me. It's amazing grace. And he chose to suffer. He wasn't confused by what was happening to him. He went to the cross willingly. But we saw his soul troubled in Gethsemane and how he recoiled from the cross. It, it was a devastating thing. But he did it for love and he did it for us. And Lord, we just want to give you thanks. And as we go through our trials, when it's hard to see the light, when we don't know what a day or even a moment will bring, we know that you entered into our pain and that the problem of evil is answered in the power of the gospel. I don't always understand your ways, Lord, but you know my way. Help us all to treasure your word more than our necessary food. Help us not to let our flesh dictate everything we do. We don't want our desires to become our God. We don't want gold to be our God. We want you to be our God. Now, as you keep your head and heart bowed, would you just spend some time meditating on God's word, letting that word seep down into your heart. Let it encourage you. These are his promises. Let it free you from fear and doubt. If you're not a Christian, run to Jesus. Don't walk, run. Something like this, Jesus saved me. I believe you died on that terrible cross for me and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring me to God. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you. Be my Lord, pray it if it's you. Be my Savior, be my God. Teach me to walk with you, Lord. If you're a prodigal and tonight's your night to come home, I pray that God will give you the words that you need. And if you're a Christian and you're going through some suffering tonight, I pray that the book of Job will give you more light and encouragement to hold on because God is not going to let you go. Thank you, Jesus. We love you in your name.